0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. So here we are in Luke chapter 19, the very beginning of chapter 19. And the first thing that strikes us is that we are in a new place. We're somewhere we have never been before in the Gospel of Luke on the journey from Galilee, which is the town of Jericho. Now, Jericho at the time of Jesus was home to an extravagant winter palace of Herod the Great, who was the king of Judah. He was a paranoid and unscrupulous despot and a king who was politically and economically subservient to the Roman Empire. So Jericho was his pleasure town. It was the place of his his enormous winter palace. And it was also a customs centre for taxes due to its location. So Jericho was on the main road leading westward to Jerusalem. And in fact, this road between Jericho and Jerusalem is the setting for the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. So Jericho would have been very well known to Luke's audience. It would have been known as a place of of decadence and tyranny and political intrigue. It would be a place associated with Judah's oppressors, namely the Roman Empire and its unscrupulous client king, and with tax collecting. Now, we've talked in recent webinars about what tax collecting and, by extension, tax collectors symbolised for the Jews of the time. Tax collectors to the Jewish people were complicit in this Gentile tyranny against them, this Roman tyranny. And moreover, they often contracted ritual impurity in the process through their work. So both politically and religiously, tax collecting and tax collectors are very much beyond the pale for the jewish people now jericho is also a place we encounter in the old testament most significantly in connection with joshua joshua being a figure we hear about in the pentateuch he's moses right hand man who becomes Moses' successor after his death he is charged by god with leading the people of israel into the promised land the land of canaan where they would settle where they would dwell in possession, as Psalm 69 says. So Moses got the people of Israel out of the slavery of Egypt in the book of Exodus, and now Joshua is going to get them into Canaan. And in the book of Joshua, we read about the military conquests of the pagan lands that were necessary to get the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, to their promised land. And Jericho is the first city to fall in the Battle of Jericho, which we read about in Joshua 6. So the Lord tells the people to march about the walls of the city for seven days, blowing trumpets and carrying the Ark of the Covenant. We read, The people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. Then we read, Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. And later, Joshua then pronounced this oath, saying, Cursed before the Lord be any one who tries to build this city, this Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn he shall lay its foundation, And at the cost of his youngest he shall set up its gates." So symbolically within the Jewish faith of the time, Jericho is opposed to the promised land. It's an obstruction to the promised land. It is a barrier to God's promises being fulfilled to the people of Israel. That is what Jericho symbolises to a mind steeped, immersed in the Jewish scriptures, And now, in in the present day, at the time of Jesus, it's the winter resort of a tyrant and filled with tax collectors. And so here we are in this gospel, we're in Jericho with the chief of the tax collectors. So it really can't get any worse than this. Uh, So how have we got to this point in Luke's gospel? Well, Jesus is drawing closer and closer to Jerusalem, as we know. Hence, he's travelling along the road on which we find Jericho. Just before entering Jericho in chapter 18 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus made his third passion prediction, his third and final passion prediction to his apostles. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. And after they have flogged him, they will kill him, And on the third day, he will rise again. But they understood nothing about all these things. In fact, what he said was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. That's the apostles. So it's a very different kind of teaching, this passion prediction, from Jesus's parabolic teachings, his teachings in parables, and one that suggests that things that Jesus has presented to his disciples and and through them to us in a veiled way in a more sort of oblique or roundabout way, are soon to be unveiled. They'll be presented to us in a very stark and literal way once we enter Jerusalem and the passion begins. But for now, it is still hidden and ungrasped. And then just before entering Jericho in this passage, um, still in Luke chapter 18, we have the healing of the blind beggar who cries out to Jesus from the side of the road. So this beggar asked the crowd who it is passing by, and we read, They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Then he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he shouted even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me see again. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Now, this is perhaps a very interesting contrast to the story of Zacchaeus, because the story of um, the blind man who is healed is basically what we expect from an encounter of someone with Jesus. The man cries out for help from Jesus. He is brought to Jesus. He is healed through his faith and he becomes then a follower of Jesus We then, we read, when he regained his sight, he followed him glorifying God. And this, as we shall see, is not what happens with Zacchaeus once we enter Jericho. That pattern is not the pattern that the story of Zacchaeus follows. However, we know from the other stories of tax collectors in Luke's gospel, we know from the call of Levi, the tax collector, the call of Levi to become a disciple in Luke 5, and from the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, In Luke 18, that in Luke, stories involving tax collectors are stories that involve stories that are all about calls to conversion and repentance. And that suggests to us that we shouldn't be thinking too much about how Zacchaeus appears to other people and about his standing in society when we read this passage. We should be thinking instead about what is happening in his interior life, in his heart, in his will. In his mind, because that is where the true action of this gospel passage will be taking place, and it is perhaps worth noting that the title for Jesus that is used in this passage, the Son of Man, is not the one that the the blind man uses. He uses Son of David, but it is the one that Jesus uses of himself in his third passion prediction when he talks of what is to happen in Jerusalem, what is to happen in his passion and death, the son of man. So Zacchaeus, this encounter with Zacchaeus is the last of Jesus's encounters with the outcast, the despised, the inconvenience, before he enters Jerusalem. And it's telling that this encounter takes place somewhere like Jericho a place that's almost diametrically opposed to everything Jerusalem, the place Jesus is going, the heart of the religion of God's chosen people, the place of the temple, stands for. And perhaps this tells us something about Jesus' mission as the incarnate word of God. He enters by his incarnation into the very depths of the human condition, unflinchingly, that we may follow him out of that misery of sin's oppression, out of our Jericho and follow him. Now we've said that Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus is a fairly strange one. It might be worth examining what I mean by that in more detail. If we look at the passage, Zacchaeus doesn't want to be seen by Jesus. He climbs up into the sycamore tree so that he can see Jesus from a distance. And Zacchaeus makes no admission of being in need of mercy. He makes no expression of sorrow, or repentance, or of needing healing, or indeed of needing anything from Jesus. In fact, it's it's Jesus who, in a a way, makes a request of Zacchaeus. He asks Zacchaeus to come down so that he can stay at his house. And only when Jesus has spoken, does Zacchaeus make a move towards him. But this tells us something very important about the human encounter with God. Often in our lives, we might feel like we are searching for God, that we're the ones who are having to act and to strive and to try hard to find God. But in fact, it is God who is always searching for us. It's God who is seeking us out, drawing us close to him. We read in the Catechism in paragraph 27, The desire for God is written in the human heart, because man is created by God and for God. And God never ceases to draw man to himself. That is why we search for God, because God is drawing us to himself. God acted first. And then we read in paragraph 52 of the Catechism, God wants to communicate his own divine life to the men he freely created in order to adopt them as his sons in his only begotten son. By revealing himself, God wishes to make them capable of responding to him. Jesus is the sign of God's will that we, his creatures, should be close to him. God reveals himself in the humanity of Christ, his son, so that we can make a response to him that draws us to him. Think of how full the gospels are of people asking questions of Jesus. But the first question in the Bible, in Genesis 3, is a question from God to man. It's a question to Adam. The Lord God called to the man and says to him, Where are you? God seeks us. He wants to know where we are. This encounter between Zacchaeus and Christ shows us the true order of the movement of grace. God speaks and man responds, God searches and man is found. So Jesus has the initiative in this encounter. Zacchaeus, a powerful man, an important man, a rich man, wants to control the encounter. He wants to see Jesus on his own terms, observe the situation on his own terms. But it's impossible to simply see Jesus from a distance. If we think of the father in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, who sees his son from a distance... But while he was still far off, his father saw him. Or we could think of the tax collector who was made righteous in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. He was standing far off. And yet his prayer brings him close to God, makes him righteous before God. And Christ makes possible all these encounters because by his divine nature, he is the giver of grace. If we go back to the catechism, paragraph one nine nine six it reads grace's favor grace is the free and undeserved help that god gives us to respond to his call to become children of god adoptive sons partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life so zacchaeus has received jesus's free and undeserved help to respond to him He's seen Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus knew he was seen. He's taken Zacchaeus' one small little act of ascent to Jesus' presence, skulking far away in a tree, and made it the basis for a gracious invitation, a gracious request to stay in Zacchaeus' house. And again, this tells us something very important about the incarnation, about the means by which God saves us. It's a very interesting development of the view of God, the vision of God, that we get in the Old Testament from the people of Israel. In the Psalms, in the poetry of Israel, we read about the Jewish people's desire to enter God's house. This is a theme that recurs again and again in the Psalms. You may have noticed some of the Psalms that we sing at Mass. If we look, for instance, at Psalm 121, I rejoiced when I heard them say, let us go to God's house. Or Psalm 27. There is one thing I ask of the Lord, for this I long, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This is the prayer of Israel, to go to the house of the Lord, to find the house of the Lord, to be in the house of God. And yet in the Gospels, particularly in Luke, we have a reversal of this. We have God in Jesus asking to enter our house, the house of humanity, The house of God becomes the house of man through the incarnation. God in Christ enters our lives in all their confusion, their misery, their disappointment and failure, their sin. And he asks to come to our house. We've spoken about this in the context of another story from the Gospel of Luke, which is Jesus coming to the house of Martha and Mary his friends, Martha and Mary, and about how that is a very concrete example of what John the Evangelist is talking about in the prologue to his gospel, in chapter one, when John says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What's interesting is that in this passage, this gospel about Zacchaeus, we read exactly the same word that is used by Luke for Martha welcoming Jesus into her house, and Zacchaeus receiving Jesus into his house after he hurries down from the tree. It's hupodechamai, which is the Greek for a personal welcome, which sees to a people's needs. So Jesus is always there. He sees us when we are far off, but he waits for our consents to come into our house. He respects our freedom and our dignity. The word has been made flesh and dwells among us, but he waits to be welcomed into the house of Mary and Martha, and he waits to be received by Zacchaeus. God has come into the house of humanity, but he waits to be allowed in before he comes into the house of each one of us. But what Jesus says at the end of this passage is not, I have come into this house. He says, today salvation has come to this house, which might at first seem strange, But they are, of course, the same thing. Jesus is salvation because he is God. He is the God who saves. And this explains why he can describe Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham, which at the time was a very conventional term for a member of the Jewish people, a member of the people of God. Because before before Jesus, friendship with God, closeness with God, that eternal life with God that is salvation came through the precepts of the old law, as far as the Jewish people were concerned. The promise of salvation had been given to them and would come through the precepts of their religion, centred around the activity of the temple in Jerusalem. But now it comes through the man Jesus, the man who is God. He does not just bring salvation, he is salvation in his very person. And we can turn our attention now to Zacchaeus, a very unusual man at the heart of this very unusual encounter. So the name of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is taken from the Hebrew Zakai, meaning an Israelite, Israelite. and that in turn comes from zakak, meaning clean or pure in God's sight. These are, these are Hebrew words. Now this is perhaps a little ironic, as Zacchaeus, as we have seen, is not only a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And none of his Jewish contemporaries would have described him as a good, upright son of Abraham, clean and pure in the sight of God, a good Israelite. And yet Jesus does call Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus is one of these people whom Luke arguably is presenting to us in order to push our commitment to Christ's message of universal salvation. And universal salvation is a great theme in Luke's gospel particularly, really to its limit. Because it's all very well for us to say, yes, of course, even the poor and the lowly and the unimportant and the humble will be saved. You know, the Marys, the Elizabeths and the Zecharias, the Simeons, the little children who come to Jesus, the poor lepers. But what about the people who are outsiders because of their behaviour? Because we can't trust them, because they're traitors, they've let us down. Because they've done bad things, because we don't like their behaviour, because in fact we don't like them. Do we wholeheartedly accept that theirs is the kingdom of God too? Or do we say, with the Pharisees whom Jesus is upbraiding in Luke 7, look a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Do we accept that our God is a friend of tax collectors and sinners? I was talking about one of the gospel stories of the healing of a leper with some children who are about First Holy Communion age, and I was saying, you know, the, the lepers were, were really shunned by other people, they were bullied by them in a way, they didn't want to talk to them. That's very sad, isn't it? And the children were all going, yes, it is very sad, you shouldn't treat people like that. And um, I said, do you think the leper has many friends? And they said, no. Would anyone have wanted to play with the lepers? No. And then I asked, can you think of anyone in your class who no one will ever play with them during playtime? And there was a sort of awkward silence as 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 the gospel message sort of, sort of came home. So choosing to recount the story of a tax collector whose name means a clean, pure Israelite is perhaps Luke turning our expectations on our head. God and salvation are not things that are going to work purely on our terms, according to our human standards of who is deserving of God's love and friendship and who is not. So what can we learn from Zacchaeus, the son of Abraham who welcomes God into his house? There's perhaps a little clue in the type of tree that he is in. Now, we translate this into English as a sycamore tree, and that's fine, but the word itself, sycamoriah, It sounds a lot like sycamore, but in fact, it means a mulberry tree. We had a similar, though slightly different species of tree in Luke 17, a sucaminos. And that's in the passage where Jesus told his apostles, if they had the faith the size of a mustard seed, it could uproot a mulberry tree and plant it in the sea. This particular tree that Zacchaeus is in doesn't get uprooted and planted in the sea. But imagine having the town's chief tax collector scramble out of it at speed and rush towards a wandering rabbi so that he can invite him into his house is almost as implausible and strange a thing to happen. If we think back to that parable of the mustard seed, which called for a small, humble, genuine faith, rather than one that is brash and self-assertive and thinks it knows all the answers, Zacchaeus teaches us something about that kind of faith. He's got just enough faith in Jesus, enough knowledge and trust in Jesus, if we break down what the virtue of faith means, knowledge and trust, to want to see Jesus from a distance, not even enough to get his faith mentioned explicitly in the passage. But that's what Jesus sees. That's what Jesus appeals to. That's what Jesus strengthens and elevates by asking Zacchaeus, If he can come and stay at Zacchaeus' house by telling him, come down from this tree, I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus shows us that human faith in God deepens and grows within us over time. That's what it's meant to do. God does not ask for a perfect faith in one single moment, but a faith with the desire and potential to grow. Like the mustard seed has the potential to grow. And he asks for this faith because that's the faith he has given us in baptism. We read in the Catechism in paragraph one, two, five, three, on the paragraph, which which is a paragraph on baptism, it says the faith required for baptism is not a perfect and mature faith, but a beginning that is called to develop. I mean if we look at Zacchaeus' response to Jesus, it starts off very well. He is going to give half his possessions to the poor, which, interestingly, is not any kind of law prescribed under the old law in the Pentateuch. It's not any part of the practices of the people of Israel. This seems to have just arisen spontaneously and quite creatively from Zacchaeus' desire to give back. And then he says, If I have defrauded anyone of anything, he will pay it back four times over. Now, what does he mean, if? Because this man is a chief tax collector, of course he has defrauded people. Tax collectors were renowned at the time of Jesus for collecting more money from people than they were required to pay back to the Roman state so that they could keep it as profit. So Zacchaeus's only real admission of sin is a conditional one. So Zacchaeus still has a, a way to go before he sees himself honestly in terms of how deeply he needs God's mercy. But then again, we can think of many other sons of Abraham, many other beloved children of God, who were also on that gradual journey towards an understanding of who God is and who they are. I mean, we can start with Abraham himself, the father of faith, who in Genesis 12 is called by God to journey to the promised land, leaving his country or his people and his father's house. He is called to leave his country, all his people and his father's house. And he does. But he takes his cousin Lot with him as a bit of a safety net. So it's not quite what God is after. It's not totally trusting faith yet. Though, of course, Abraham's faith does grow and develop. He is, he is thought of as a, as a father of faith. He is one of the fathers of faith, one of the heroes of faith mentioned in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11. Then we have the Apostle Thomas in John 20, who was willing to believe in the risen Jesus, but will not actually do so, he says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side. And then we have Simon Peter, who quite literally tells Jesus in Luke 5, go away from me, Lord, For he is overwhelmed by the miracle of the huge catch of fish. He tells Jesus to go away from him, and yet Jesus still calls him to follow. So, the encounter with Jesus, in itself, by itself, has been enough to spur the beginnings of this astonishing conversion in Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. He's going to give away half of all his possessions. He's willing to pay back people four times over, if necessary. But thank God, and luckily for us, conversion is not a one-off event. It's not that Jesus meets us once, and we have one opportunity to get it right first time. It's not that God comes into our life for one brief second and then departs again. The fact that God became incarnate in human history shows he is willing and able to work within time across our personal history. Zacchaeus is going to grow and develop in his friendship with Jesus. The mustard seed is going to grow. That journey of faith and discipleship that we've joined the disciples on throughout this section of the Gospel of Luke, that literal physical journey from Galilee to Jerusalem with Jesus becomes the pattern for the spiritual interior journey we see Zacchaeus embarking on, a journey from the Jericho of sin and selfishness to the Jerusalem of new life. I want to return now to the Jericho of the Old Testament, to the story of Jericho's destruction under the military leadership of Joshua, to examine a bit more closely what this passage tells us about the church because it's not quite true to say that the whole of Jericho was destroyed in the book of Joshua. So Joshua says in Joshua chapter six, after the walls of Jericho have come down, the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers we sent. Now, we met Rahab the prostitute earlier in the book of Joshua in chapter two, where she protected two Jewish men who had been sent to, to spy out the land of Jericho to help prepare the people of Israel for the battle. She had hidden those two men from the authorities because of her apparently completely implausible belief, this prostitute in the pagan city of Jericho, in the God of Israel as as revealed to the Jewish people. She says to the two spies that the reason she's hiding them, protecting them, is because The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. And for her faith, Rahab is remembered in a couple of places in the Old Testament as an example of faith. preeminently in Hebrews chapter 11, which is also where we hear that Abraham is a great hero of faith. And also in the letter of James chapter 2, which describes her as justified, made righteous by works. So Rahab, we could say, is a type of precursor of Zacchaeus. In Jericho, at the time of Joshua, a sinner is made righteous for the welcome she gives to the people of God. And in Jericho, at the time of Jesus, a sinner is made righteous again by the welcome he gives to God himself. The house of sinners becomes the house of the righteous. And this, in a nutshell, is the action of the church. It makes the house of sinners into the house of the righteous, the house of saints. Our lives in the church are making all of us into saints. God enters the Jericho of the human condition and transforms the house of the human heart into the house of God. God enters our Jericho in the person of Jesus, his incarnate son. Jesus says to the crowd, salvation has come to this house. And Jesus is salvation in his person. Salvation, Jesus, has come to the house of Zacchaeus. And we know, too, that he is still here among us. He abides in his church through his real presence in the Eucharist, through his grace working through all the sacraments. He is present in us, the members of his mystical body, made a true part of his life in the sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of faith. And we have this encounter that Zacchaeus has with Jesus, the encounter of being seen by Christ and having the opportunity to invite him in, to receive him into our house every time we attend Mass and receive the Eucharist. That is how this pattern of this encounter with Zacchaeus, the pattern of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, continues in our lives through the church. If we look once more at the the verse with which this passage ends, Jesus saying that salvation has come to this house for the son of man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is very telling because this is an echo of another passage from the Old Testament. It's an echo of God's promise to the people of Israel made through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34. The Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost. But Jesus, God in man, takes that one step further. He will not just seek out the lost, he will seek out and save the lost. He's explaining more, revealing to us more, the will of God for his chosen people. The chosen people which is fulfilled and culminates in the people of God that is the church god is gathered is god is gathering his lost and scattered people together in order to save them that is the ultimate purpose of all these stories we read about in the gospels to show us that god desires to seek out the lost sheep and gather them together and why to save them to bring them to live forever with him In the joy of the beatific vision, no longer separated from the fullness of life by sin. I want to finish by just pointing out that this passage is characterised by joy. Zacchaeus, we read, was happy to receive Jesus. And the word used literally means that he was joyful in receiving him. He was full of joy to receive him. He rejoiced. And joy is very characteristic of the good news in the Gospel of Luke. And joy is particularly linked to the experience of God's mercy. So, for instance, the father of the prodigal son exhorts the older son to rejoice because his younger brother is returned. He was dead and now he is alive. He is lost, but now he is found. Also in Luke 15, just before the parable of the prodigal son we have the shepherd in the parable of the one lost sheep who leaves his 99 other sheep to bring back the stray and we are told rejoices and then we are told that the crowd rejoices in Luke 13 when Jesus heals the woman who is bent over under the influence of an evil spirit so when Jesus meets a suffering person a rejected person a lost person whether their suffering is through sin or through physical ailment, that meeting of mercy leads to rejoicing. And this should really be the theme of our lives in the church too. We should see it as a life of joy. The church is a place of joy because it's the place where God has come to us to dwell in the house of humanity. It's the place of God's joy that we, through our free will, our free choice, have let him in, to transform our lives by his presence, to free us from our sin. And perhaps we will find in ourselves, in our lives in the church, that desire to, to come down from our tree and run towards Jesus as Zacchaeus did.